Hey there, welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm talking to you from suddenly rainy Los Angeles, California, where last night we had this big storm. It rained for the first time in well over a year. It feels like I could be wrong, but it feels like that. But uh, And it rained in July, making it the wettest July, the third wettest July in recorded LA history. Number two was in 1886. So make of that what you will, but that's the context I'm coming to you from. I'm Dave Smelser. This week, we will pop in for a visit to one of the most unexpected parts of the New Testament, which is a place I enjoy visiting on the Pocket Contemplative on occasion. And this part drives a contrarian point that our lives can feel like an extended waiting room a good deal of the time, where we're hoping for some big thing or another, which stubbornly doesn't seem to be coming all that quickly. And this part of the New Testament makes the surprising claim that quite possibly Jesus's most important role of all his roles— is to be a kind of high priest for that not getting whatever that thing is we're waiting for. As if, if we groove with that, we then, in a remarkable bit of sleight of hand, get this other thing that we actually also really want, but hadn't been able to put words to. It turns out to be one of the biggie contemplative insights. I will start with a quick story that's become iconic for me along these lines. Then we'll schmooze about this contrarian letter to the Hebrews, the part of the New Testament we'll be looking at. We'll consider a perspective along these lines from the recent Oscar winner Nomad Land. We'll touch on what alienation can look like along these lines, like alienation from one's country or from a church or whatever we might feel alienated from. And we'll finish up with what strike me as some pretty provocative insights we're given about what a spirituality that's perpetually on the move might offer us. Before we get started, as I touch on each week, if you like the sort of spirituality we talk about here— you know, I think you might really enjoy trying out a weekly online group I help host around these things with folks from around the country and beyond. So give it a try. Why couldn't that be something you would check out this week and think, I wonder if that sort of support would make these sorts of insights from this podcast more real and give me some friends to do it with. So should you want to check one out, we have three groups, one on Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern time, one on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern time, one on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And as I've sometimes mentioned, if you're the sort of person who would enjoy dropping by a Sunday service experience in this vein, we have them on the third Sundays of each month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Third Sundays of the month. I believe that's the 15th of the next month, August. For login information on any of this stuff, email connect at journey-on.net. Connect at journey-on.net. Okay. Kick us off, Ryan Hood 4. When life feels like one long in-between. talked on an earlier podcast about a stretch of my life when I was working entry-level jobs in order to pay the rent while I tried to become an established playwright in the Bay Area. But whatever romantic dreams I had about that faded pretty quickly. Friends I had in the area all soon moved away as their lives took shape elsewhere. And I lived with a friend, but a kind of a quiet friend and someone he'd found a room with who I was just getting to meet, only to discover that my new housemate didn't really like to talk at all, not even to respond to hello. And my entry-level job at the time turned out to be quite solitary. So I would go and do library research for a university project, research on a subject I had no background on or interest in. And then after maybe eight hours of the solitary work, I would go home to my solitary house. And I tried to figure out what I could do then. So I started taking long walks and praying, trying to learn more about the chatty faith that great saints like Brother Lawrence of France described. 
And on the upside, those turned out to be formative for me to the point that I felt God suggesting to me that I should enjoy it while I had it, that I would never have an opportunity quite like that again. And that's been true in many ways. Not long after that, I got married and then had five kids, so my household has never again been that solitary, for sure. But an evocative letter in the New Testament comments on my experience in that unsettling season. It's the letter to the Hebrews, which is written by we don't know who. We're not sure if it's even a man or a woman, so I'll mostly call this person the author. But it says things along these lines that I don't think we find any place else. So chapter 2 suggests that converting to Jesus had been a highlight for the readers, full of the power of God. But then they experienced harassment, like verbal abuse and occasional imprisonment. So that's harassment. And initially they rallied and they supported each other. But that solidarity faded. They got discouraged. Some people drifted away from the whole thing. They felt marginalized in their own society. The author uses several images to recontextualize how they might understand their situation. The first is of Moses leading the Israelites through the desert. So the Israelites' beginning point was leaving slavery. Their end point was supposed to be the so-called promised land. But their story ends up mostly being in the middle, in the desert. In Hebrews, we get surprising and unsettling observations about how to regard Moses's and the Israelites' life in the desert, that the author seems to think will give perspective and meaning to his or her readers who've gone through such disappointment and dislocation themselves. But at first blush, it's hard to imagine how it would cheer them up. Like, here's how the author says his or her dislocated readers should regard Abraham, alongside Moses, another great hero of the early Bible, as if this will inspire them. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's from Hebrews chapter 11. Again, I can't imagine how this would be a great pick-me-up to his readers who feel ripped out of the life they thought would be just fantastic, but which instead turned out to be so confusing. Although there are some intriguing breadcrumbs here, which we'll touch on in a moment. One is it turns out that part of Abraham's living intense wandering was in fact in what would become the promised land. So those weren't opposed. You could have both at the same time. And the idea that he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. We'll get back to that too, as if the permanent place, the good part of life, the life that he can just settle into and enjoy is somehow a little more distant than perhaps he would have expected, but is, is maybe even better than he would have expected. We'll talk about that. Anyway, to clarify, the author then generalizes not just about Abraham, but about every great godly person like Abraham by saying this, also in chapter 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own, a better country, a heavenly one. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the good life with God, which is not getting whatever great things you feel like God said you were going to get, not getting this dreamy life of the stuff you were hoping for, not getting the promised land, unless it's in that Abraham sense, which includes still wandering in the desert. Who exactly would sign up for this? But the surprising upshot is that the author is suggesting the story of Moses and the Israelites as a sort of paradigm for how his or her readers can discover the life they, in fact, were hoping for, but discover it in a really different way than they'd expected to get it. And maybe the paradigm goes something like this. First, this in-between journey in the desert is what you might more broadly call your life. 
Second, Jesus is the high priest of this in-between life. It's the thing he does best, according to the author of Hebrews. But then third, this in-between desert journey is meant to become itself the sense where we're not getting the things we thought we were going to get, where we're just kind of waiting for the good stuff to start. That thing evidently is meant to become, for the moment, our promised land itself. While I'm not sure I could have handled this perspective in my younger days, it does have a certain resonance now, as if those otherwise lonely walks with God as I lived with my quiet housemates and worked my solitary job were not just ways to keep myself sane on my way to my dream of a successful playwriting career, which never came, but strangely embodied the seeds of the rich life I was trying to create for myself right in that lonely time. It's as if the author of Hebrews was saying, what if those Israelites in the desert, rather than bemoaning how horrible their lives had become, instead just like partied every day in the desert or not? And what if Jesus is the road to experiencing how to pull that off? As if, even if they were to reach the promised land, at the end of their lives, they would say, man, those desert years were the best. We had such a blast then. I think of an intriguing picture of this from the recent Oscar-winning movie Nomad Land. My wife, Grace, really loved Nomad Land, but that movie left me feeling agitated. So watching the movie, we live with these real-life nomads. The filmmakers learned about them from a New Yorker article. As these people live in their campers or their vans and move around, sometimes they band together, and sometimes they're on their own, and we're left feeling scared about the consequences of bottoming out economically when we're at retirement age, which is the age of many of the nomads and which is what agitated me. But we're also left with the beauty of the life they're being offered. So the cinematography of the movie is remarkable. We're in these scenes of the American West, often, as in Hebrews, in the desert. But even in the humble circumstances of our nomads, the experience of being in the movie is often breathtaking. Now, obviously, I can't show the stunning vistas on a podcast. But among several memorable scenes is one with a real-life nomad who plays herself in the movie. There are only a couple of actual actors, including Frances McDormand, who won the Oscar for her performance. So in this scene, we hear from a 75-year-old woman who calls herself Swanky, who, we've learned, will, at least in terms of the movie, soon be dead from, if memory serves, cancer, and who has decided just to continue her nomadic trek all by herself until she dies. So here she talks to Frances McDormand about what she's gotten from her wanderings thus far. I'm going to be 75 this year, and I think I've lived a pretty good life. I've seen some really neat things, kayaking, all those places. And, you know, like, like moose in the wild, a moose family on a river in Idaho, and um, big white pelicans landing just six feet over my kayak on a lake in Colorado, or... Uh, um, come around a bend uh, with a cliff and find hundreds and hundreds of swallow nests on the on the wall of the cliff and the swallows flying all around and reflecting in the water so it looks like I'm flying with the swallows and they're under me and over me and all around me and the little babies are hatching out and eggshells are falling out of the nest landing on the water and floating on the water these little white shells it's like it was just so awesome. I felt like I'd, I'd done enough. My life was complete. If I died right, right then, that moment, would be perfectly fine. Then she later texts McDormand's character a video of all these swallows and their nests and them swarming over the river, and it is stunning. So, right, there's a, there's a melancholy quality to the scene. The music is sad and pretty. But there's also a remarkable beauty that gets suggested here, that suggests the, the pleasures of a life in the in-between, of traveling the desert between point A and point B as itself the rich experience of living. 
So I think about this stuff in a variety of ways. Like being local, at least to America for a moment, it seems like a lot of my fellow Americans feel alienated from their country in, over the last few years. Maybe forever, that's been true, but certainly the last few years. It doesn't seem like the place we thought we were in. And while things could get better, they could also get worse. And of course, many of our non-Americans understand that entirely well in their own countries. And some of my friends, on another note, can feel ripped away from what had once been a hopeful and encouraging worship experience they no longer have. Their, their formerly great church no longer really works for them, say. One scholar I looked at who talks about the letter to the Hebrews says that's entirely what's happening here. That's part of what leaves the original readers so disillusioned. And that, of course, is such a central contemplative insight that we're tempted to cling to some encouraging thing in our past that's no longer present to us. And we're tempted to grasp for that thing we're hoping for, for our promised land. But that there's surprising life right in this moment with Swanky or the younger solitary me as we walk through the desert. As was true for Abraham and all the other heroes of faith the author of Hebrews holds up for us to look at. So let's say the author of Hebrews is on to something. What are we supposed to do? Let's take a quick tour of a number of perspectives that get run past us. So I wonder if we'd be advised to embrace that our spirituality has always been intended to be in motion, to never have arrived. So chapter 8 gives us this. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. So the main point, that seems important. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. So let's say we feel removed from the worship experience we once so loved. We're told that Jesus is set up as the high priest of this thing called the tabernacle, which was this temporary movable church of the wandering journey. It was always on the move. It, it was not like a place you would go to. It was a place that went with you. Um, so chapter eight on this point that we're embracing that our spirituality has always been intended to be in motion and never to have arrived. Chapter eight continues by saying, and this is the covenant that God says, I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. All right. So this is talking about this famous thing called the new covenant, the new deal that God is offering people. But this is making the point in this context the New Covenant, the main feature, is it's portable. It travels with you. In the Old Covenant, they were yearning for Jerusalem, for their solid, unmoving, quote, inheritance, for a place that they could then put a wall up and defend from all attackers, and it's theirs. But in the New Covenant, Jerusalem becomes a heavenly city, what gets called a New Jerusalem, which is wherever Jesus is. It's, it's just wherever you go. All right, so if the, the first thing we'd be advised to do is embrace that our spirituality has always been intended to be in motion. The second thing, I think, is to take advantage of Jesus as the high priest of this in-between. So chapter 3 says, well, therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So that's pretty direct and right. Why would we do that? Because he's the God of the tabernacle. He's the one who can help us in this time in the desert where we're not arriving at this big promised land place in this in-between time. Chapter 12 has this read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So all these, this cloud of people, all these great saints in the past who also did not get what was promised, they're watching us now. And what they're telling us to do is keep your eye on Jesus, 
because he's the one who's gone first in this in-between time and can make your experience of faith perfect right now. Or chapter 13, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So Jesus wasn't living in that fixed place where everyone else lived and made their home and things like that. Jesus was outside that. There's a gate, there's a wall around the city that's otherwise being defended and it's being held onto. That's the place we want and we're going to defend it against all attackers. Jesus didn't live in that place. He lived outside of that place. And it continues by saying, let us then go to him outside the camp, outside those walls. For here, we do not have an enduring city like those people inside the walls think they do. When we're with Jesus, we don't. But we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Somehow, being with Jesus and kind of relaxing into the new reality. Like, we're going to shake our fist at God if we think, why can't I ever just get to whatever my life is supposed to be? The good stuff. You know, I'm in my trying to become a playwright era, and I'm taking these walks because my friends have all moved out of town, and my one friend who's there is kind of quiet, and the guy I'm rooming with now really doesn't speak at all, and I'm doing a solitary job, and I think, when is my life going to start? And the answer seems to be, well, you're living now, buddy. And so figure out a way to live outside the camp. You're in motion with Jesus in a way that, you know, has some praise and kind of relax into this. Don't fight this and do it with Jesus, see what happens. All right, so if we're going to supposed to take advantage of Jesus as this high priest of this in-between place, then I think we're also supposed to relax again into our present experience, even when many important problems are unsolved. So obviously, I didn't have you know friends in that period. I didn't I didn't have the thing I my dream. I didn't have. There were so many important problems unsolved, and I think life is a lot often that way, right? What does it mean to relax into our present experience with this high priest, with Jesus, right now? even when so much is unresolved. Chapter 4 says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest, God's rest, still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So again, this is speaking to people on this desert trek where they're just thinking, when are we going to get to this good thing? And the advice is, enter God's rest. Rest right now. Relax into what is here, even though it's the desert. Chapter 11 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So faith is this relaxing into our experience right now in this in-between time. Chapter 12, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So as we're relaxing into our experience in this desert thing, here's how it could go bad. If we don't relax into it, what's going to happen? We're going to get bitter. And we're going to make it worse for other people around us because we're agitating against what is right now, even if there's so many unsolved problems. We're just relaxing into what is right here. But if we don't do that, if we just think, I'm in this unending desert, we're going to be bitter and we're going to cause problems. All right. Then I think a tip that we get is keep learning about how to enjoy Jesus in the desert. There's a, there's a lifelong learning component, a growth aspect of this thing. Chapter 6, therefore... Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Well, in the context of Hebrews, what are the elementary teachings exactly? The elementary teachings represent all those joyful early experiences the Hebrews, Hebrew readers had. The elementary teachings were the good stuff, the stuff they liked, the stuff that seems to have vanished from them. That was the elementary teachings. And they're told, 
leave those behind. Well, it turned out all the things that made them so excited about their experience with God were only meant to get their journey started. We're never meant to sustain them on this in-between path that life sort of is. For Hebrews, at least, what are the teachings about maturity we're supposed to get? They're, they're the teachings about leaning into Jesus in the unending desert. That's maturity. Interesting. So chapter six on this, keep learning about how to enjoy Jesus in the desert point. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So fruit from our early enthusiastic days needs to empower us to enjoy God in the desert. Otherwise, that fruit is worthless and will be, it's not even, it's as if that didn't even happen. Whatever good stuff happened with God, then it's just wiped away. Because if the consequence of that early enthusiasm is that now it makes us chafe against our life as it is, it's damaging. It would have been better that it never happened, says Hebrews chapter 6. And then finally, prioritize experiences over accomplishments. Sort of a tough one in some ways to think about, but experiences are really held up here as the good thing, and accomplishments are like, well, whatever. I got came to learn that in my solitary time, right? I had these accomplishments I was hoping for, but meanwhile, I'm in an in-between time. I need to learn how to experience, to rest, to relax into God right here. The experience becomes important. And that's what Swanky came to believe in Nomadland, right? It's the experience of the journey that's the big deal. Look, I very much hope for accomplishments, but increasingly, I don't hope for them at the expense of the in-between time. In that spirit, does this mean there actually is no promise from God over your life? The whole idea of a promised land, of promises at all, that's just bunk. Is that what that means? I don't think that's what that means. I actually love the thought of receiving promises from God, and certainly the Israelites in the Moses story loved it as well and had promises from God. But what changes as we take the journey into the desert is that alongside, we're told, every godly person whom the author of Hebrews tells us about, we come to realize that the promise may be way bigger than we thought and may frankly come outside of our normal understanding of time. The land, again, symbolized by Jerusalem, now gets understood as the new Jerusalem, which is a heavenly city, as if alongside Abraham and Moses and the others. What it turned out we signed up for was learning to discover the Jesus who doesn't live in fixed sanctuaries, but lives in these portable tabernacles that we take with us as we go. As we end up with fulfilled promises beyond our hopes, but also perhaps beyond our lifetimes. As if, with this big shift of perspective, we actually have Jesus in every important way when we haven't yet come to our promised land. And that's going to give us all the stuff we're looking for in life. The power of nomad land, if you discover that it has power for you, strikes me as exactly this. What seems horrifying in conception, that in one's later years, one would end up living out of a van with no place to call home, and in a desert at that, since the West becomes the most hospitable setting for the nomads. By the way, the West that hasn't had rain for over a year, so I'm with that image. It's a desert. But the conception is that that place turns out to be remarkably beautiful in practice if you learn to relax into it with Jesus. May that increasingly be true for you and for me in whatever can feel like our in-between lives. Thanks for joining this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. I will look forward to seeing you again soon. <laughs> <laughs>